Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, yeah, we're back for another year. I think it's like the 17th or 18th year of this show. A lot of years. Uh, anyway, and uh, we'll be chatting with Adam Boileau about all of the security news that we uh, that we missed over the last month or so. Uh, and then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview. And this week we're speaking to Dan Guido from Trail of Bits. And they've done some really interesting work in developing a, uh, like a proof of exploit technique, right? So you can prove that you have a functioning exploit against a uh, particular type of system and ship off that proof uh, to demonstrate that you can control a register or something like that. Uh, this is a very interesting technology and quite useful in a lot of ways. And Dan will be joining us after this week's news uh, to have a chat about that. So let's get into the news now, Adam. And we're doing it a bit differently this week because, you know, we have been on break for a few weeks, right? So when we come back, there's always a mountain of news, you know, too much to go through individually. So I thought it might, might make sense. Uh, for our sh first show back uh, for the year to talk about things uh, with a, with an emphasis on themes, right? And and themes that sort of emerged last year and are carrying on to uh, into uh, 2023. And I guess the first place to start is let's look at what's going on with attacks against all of these really important trusted centralized systems. I'm talking, of course, about things like LastPass, uh, Slack had an incident, you know, Okta got its source code stolen from uh, GitHub, apparently. Uh, and now, of course, CircleCI has had an incident as well. Yes, a number of, you know, security relevant software as a service vendors have had a pretty rough, uh, you know, rough couple of months. Uh, you know, the last past one was just happening when we finished up for the year. And that involved eventually having all of their password storage databases stolen. Uh, so obviously they're encrypted with the master passwords because by design LastPass doesn't have access to that. Um, but yeah, that, you know, if you're a password manager, that seems like a pretty bad thing. Uh, and then obviously uh, you mentioned Slack and, and CircleCI, GitHub um, in the middle of the infrastructure. There's just such a complicated set of relationships between these different vendors and trying to understand look, what's the impact of LastPass to you? What's the impact of... Uh, you know, Slack having a bunch of its uh, employee API tokens, uh, employee, you know, authentication tokens stolen and used against their own infrastructure kind of requires some understanding of how Slack works inside, which you know, one of the points of a centralized software as a service is that you don't need to think about how it works internally. And yet now with LastPass and Slack, Circle CI, we have to start thinking about that. Yeah, and even though you might use one of these services to do something simple, that doesn't mean that their systems, their infrastructure is simple, right? <laughs> like there's a exactly. lot of there's a lot of attack surface there and they're an organization like any other. And I think increasingly attackers at the at the upper end of the food chain are realizing that there's, you know, there's a lot that can be achieved by going directly after these sort of trusted major services. Yes, exactly. I mean, something like CircleCI, which provides kind of software build and deployment services, you know, is a part of the glue of how many organizations deploy software and infrastructure. Uh, and that process, you know, has a whole bunch of authentication, you know, involved in SSH keys and API tokens and OAuth tokens and things like that. Um, and in the case of CircleCI, they're saying they had someone in their infrastructure for a couple of months and that you have to rotate all of your credential material. Yay. And even just understanding, you know, like what the contents of environment variables used during a particular phase of your software build process, are they sensitive? Do they need to be changed? How do you change them? What's the impact of changing them? And doing that across, you know, SSH keys and, and all sorts of other web services that have tokens, like understanding the impact of any particular piece of key material being compromised it's kind of like the software supply chain problem, you know, yeah. where you don't necessarily have a great understanding of how all those tokens work, what they buy you, and what it means to rotate them, how you rotate to them. Um, because well, we're used you, to changing passwords, but... How, how do you go about structuring your organization, your enterprise, to be resistant against compromise at, like, your SSO provider or your CICD pipeline <laughs> provider or, or Slack? And, you know, it, it's impossible. Yes, it, it's a very, very difficult problem. And back when all software was on-prem or back when, you know, you used infrastructure as a service, you know, Amazon, AWS, um, EC2 instances, you know, where they are basically just computers that are not on your hardware, but otherwise you manage them like real computers. Like, it was understandable. We had 
you know, spent a long time getting to grips with how to think about that. Now that all the integrations and the services are much further up the stack, it's very difficult because you're not dealing with well understood sets of security abstractions like Windows file permissions or you know network services that you know you know you can firewall or something because the the um, applications are now all very tightly integrated and, and much more customized much more you know you have to ask each developer each piece of software you use how it you know how those tokens manage how does permission management work how do groups work all those sorts of things so it's very very difficult and putting you know as you said like the, the services are themselves are very complicated and we are encouraged not to understand how they work internally yeah um, and indeed the the piece from ours tactical which kind of writes up a, a number of these uh, uh, by dan gooden you know is pretty critical of the level of transparency provided by those vendors you know dropping advisories or, or up no he did it look I, I noticed that too dan did a good job of sort of pointing to their statements where they're like there was an incident and they don't say like you know, they say there are currently no attackers in our network or something like that, which kind of implies there were, right? So, yes. you know, like it's it's very weaselly. Um, I, I sort of feel like we've regressed a little bit in terms I think of, so too, yeah. yeah, in terms of transparency. I mean, there was a time, look, full credit to Okta as well for being so transparent about getting their source code pinched from GitHub. And I think this was as a result of some third party thing as well. And there were maybe other people affected, but like, I think Okta's one of the only ones saying, hey, this happened, whereas other people are just not talking about it at all. Yes. So I, I certainly feel like we've regressed in terms of vendor transparency. And again, full credit to Okta for owning up to getting their GitHub popped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, now that the software is not on-prem, like, so when we when we were, you know, pushing full disclosure, when, you know, all of the early work on trying to make coordinated disclosure and having good quality vulnerability information um, and indeed, you know, things like the CVE numbers and all that, you know, taxonomic, taxonomic data, you know, that was a long time to make work. And that really was a result of us having to have enough information to manage it when the software was on-prem. Now it's not. Mm. The need for that transparency that we that we fought so hard for, you know, is kind of evaporating. Going back to you know PR platitudes, I love the sort of cognitive dissonance here when you've got Circle CI saying everything's fine, but please rotate all your key material. <laughs> you know, like that's a that's a hell of a message to digest. It, right? it really is, yes. And you know, I think you know lapsus and you know low end attackers like when I say low end, I guess you know comedy attackers like lapsus through to nation states. Everyone understands that going after these types of targets is pretty valuable, uh, and that you can get a lot right if you've got all of the creds for all of the build processes for all of Circle CI's customers. The set of options you've got now. And into the future, because not everyone is going to rotate all of their creds. Not everyone's going to understand which creds need rotating. Uh, and, you know, it's going to lead to a whole bunch of downstream breaches. And we're not necessarily going to know how they happened. So you don't see the full costs. But I think, you know, this, you know, we've put so much faith into software as a service vendors. Uh, and it's going to come back to bite us. Um, well, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, there have been benefits as well. Let's not forget of course, that, yes, of you course. know, things things are better now in a lot of ways, right? And this is just, we've, we've shifted some of the problem onto this. But would you agree with my statement uh, from earlier that this is a, a trend we can expect to see continue into 2023 and poss possibly even ramp up a bit? Because that's, that's where I'm at with this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, if you are... You know, if you're looking for a bug somewhere and you find one in a SaaS vendor or a cloud vendor or somewhere where you can burn the bug once and get maximum return on investment, it makes sense to do that rather than go after individual end-user organizations. It makes sense to go after LastPass, nick their things, and then, you know, see what you can get yeah, out look, of it. And look, you don't look, necessarily look. know. I, I, I want to talk just quickly about the LastPass thing. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing most of the audience is probably sick of hearing about it because it was very big news, um, uh, certainly the, the you know in December last year. Uh, but I feel like, you know, it's bad, right? It's obviously bad. I mean, the worst thing is there was some unencrypted stuff uh, in these password, you know, uh, vaults, right? Like, the, like in the, the metadata, or yeah, rather than yeah, the, the exactly, like URLs that may have contained, you know, session information and stuff. I mean, I'm guessing, like for most, um, uh, you know, reputable web services, you know, your Gmails, your Facebooks, and whatever, that's not going to be the case. So I think that's that's kind of not such a big deal. I've always seen password managers to a large degree as being more sort of convenience tools rather than security tools, right? You don't 
not use multi-factor authentication on your bank or crypto account because you're using a password manager. Okay, it's it's a it's a convenience feature. That's how I've I've I, I tend to see it. It generally puts you ahead in terms of security. The biggest risks here is that someone gets their password vault or whatever you want to call it stolen, and uh, perhaps their another password of theirs is uh, has been exposed in a data breach and they reused it for their password vault. Bang! Someone cracks it open. Brooding these things is going to be hard. Um, but I, I, I sort of feel like, yeah, LastPass obviously made some decisions about how they store data, which, you know, I think, I'm, I'm guessing they made those decisions for a reason, but I'm struggling to see how those decisions could really be justified. <laughs> um, but I'm guessing there was a reason, but I'm going to say I don't think their architectural choices were necessarily that, that sane. But I do feel like people have gone a bit overboard with the commentary here talking about it being the end of the world. I mean, the fact that we know that this happened, given the cracking time for some of these things, like just go change your passwords. You're fine, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, password managers are great because they've solved the password reuse problem you know, because of the convenience and the ease of managing multiple passwords. And that's totally a net benefit uh, over not using one. And as you say, multi-factor still means that giving your cred style is not so bad. I did see some people who were storing like uh, um, multi-factor recovery keys like in the notes fields or in the metadata in their password manager. And like, that's a thing that would be bad if it turned yes. out to be unencrypted and well, so which is why say, which is why I question some of their architectural choices yes. like this is like when a pen tester you know gets on an active directory and there's notes right with like yes. admin passwords and stuff it's exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. the same thing don't do that <laughs> yeah um and you you're right like changing the master password not using a, a guessable master password you're probably okay um the uh, master passwords are encrypted uh, with pbkdf2 sha256 at 100k iterations i think which, it depends on when you establish the vault yeah, right so if, yes. if if it's a legacy one like it's it's less and it might possibly be crackable yeah. but again it's still going to take time yeah i mean so for for reference like that setup the default now of 100,000 rounds is about you know it's in the tens of thousands per second on a modern gpu so like 90k on an rtx 2090 more like 30 or 40k on a you know the things that are our cracking rig a, a 1080 ti which you know is comparable to other slow hash algorithms and is still makes dictionary reasonable to do uh so like if dictionary, your master password, sure, but come on people who use password managers are probably going to select a decent password for their password manager now i i guess the reason i wanted to talk about this right is is because the part of of, of the commentary around this that is sort of pissed me off a bit is people saying oh look as an industry we've been telling people to use password managers and look they're no good and i just don't i just don't think yeah, you can yeah. make that call at all no no i agree completely password managers still totally a net benefit over the old ways of doing things of just using the name of your dog everywhere so yeah total thing yeah yeah, yeah and I, I i still don't think we know who pulled this particular caper either like i i think i saw some tweets where people are like oh my crypto got stolen it must be related to LastPass because i'm a LastPass user but nothing concrete right other people like yeah. oh maybe it was the russians oh yeah i mean that's the funny thing like it could be crypto kids it could be lapses kids it could be russians it could well, be crypto Iranians, kids can often be, be like anyone. north korean government agents as well, <laughs> well uh, exactly yeah that's, there's not an so, or yeah. situation this could be an and yeah <laughs> Well, look, let's let's move on into our next theme of the week, uh, Adam. And the next theme is intrigue. <laughs> uh, let's kick it off actually just quickly with uh, a, a Supreme Court, um, a bit of US Supreme Court news. Uh, the Supreme Court in the United States has declined to hear NSO's argument that it should have sovereign immunity. Lower courts in the US have already rejected the argument got kicked all the way up to the Supreme Court and they're like, no, we're not going to hear this. So that means I'm guessing these lawsuits are going to start moving forward and we're going to learn all sorts of juicy details in uh, in these court hearings, I would imagine. Uh, yes, and I mean, it kind of makes sense when, you know, uh, NSO has always tried to play sort of both sides of this. Like they were saying, you know, we were just following orders effectively, like, the, uh, you know, we can't be held responsible for what our government customers do with our tooling. And then at the same time, they say we have no visibility over it. And at the same time, they say, actually, we throw people out who you know do bad stuff with our tools like well how, how, do, how do you know if you can't see what they do and you're not responsible for it so yeah yeah well that one's going to grind on uh by the looks of things and so this is the whatsapp yeah the whatsapp suit against nso so um yeah hooray more bad times there. and keep in mind that suit was first filed in 2019 you know and things have gone massively wrong for nso yes, over the last three years yeah. right so this just feels like the problems are just, you know, insurmountable now uh, for them. But look, you know, moving to to general intrigue on the internet and attacks and whatnot, 
We've got just so many stories here, Adam. So we can't talk <laughs> about them all, right? We're going to be here forever. But I'm just going to whiz through a few of them, right? The Serbian government, and this is just uh, this week, has reported massive DDoS attacks. Uh, you know, there's tensions in the Balkans. The thinking is that this is pro-Russian attackers just launching absolutely epic DDoS attacks at the Serbian government. We've got Ukrainian hackers now going after... Iranian targets because they are supplying, you know, apparently they're supplying Russia with these uh, Shahid drones uh, that are being used to attack uh, civilian targets quite often in um, uh, in Ukraine. So, you know, there's a there's a bit of an online uh, bun fight happening there. We've also <laughs> got, Ukra you know, pro-Ukrainian hackers leaking Russian data and they're just hoping someone will do something with that. I'm not terribly optimistic that that'll happen. Um, and then we've got this one, which you did a bit of research on, actually, so we can talk about this one. CyberScoop is reporting uh, that researchers from CISA uh, took a look at a breach of a US-based satellite comms network. And uh, the perpetrator in this case was, was Fancy Bear, a Russian APT crew. Um, this is interesting, right? When you've got Russian attackers getting into these satellite comms networks, which apparently are used quite heavily in energy infrastructure. Is that right? Yeah, yes. So there was a, a talk at CyberWarCon from uh, MJ Emanuel from CISA, uh, and she walked through an instant response that they had done. Uh, and yes, this was a uh, like a sort of an overlay provider on top of uh, Inmarsat's BGAN service, which is like you know, orbital uh, low speed IP, uh, which is used a lot in SCADA and control systems backhaul. Uh, and yeah, this was like. Russians got in through unpatched Fortinet, like FortiGate Firewall VPN Terminator. And from that point, they had access to clear text, SCADA traffic to and from, you know, control systems elements uh, used in yeah, a month of, of critical infrastructure and things. Like, it doesn't sound like um, a, a large provider, like in the order of, you know, dozens to hundreds of customers, uh, but it did appear from you know the work they did during the incident response that the attackers in question did kind of understand where they were and what they were doing which <laughs> yeah. you know given concerns about the energy sector in general obviously we've seen uh, you know rob joyce talking about uh, you know russian the risks from cyber threats to the energy sector and we've seen some other attacks in europe on you know oil oil and gas infrastructure comms infrastructure you know. I mean, before we move on to talk about that, though, I got a bone to pick with the editor at CyberScoop because the headline on this is CISA researchers, Russia's fancy bear infiltrated US satellite network. Now, if we were running that story, the headline would have to be bears in space tubes. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do you miss yes. this golden opportunity for the bears in space tubes headline? Mm -hmm. yeah, you know? yeah, what are you no, doing, yeah. CyberScoop? Go home. Go home. But yeah, look, you're right. Uh, uh, Rob Joyce uh, made some comments at a public forum last year saying, look, you know, uh, Russia's going to be going, there's been a lot of activity. And I think that's borne out. Like we, we, we come down, we sit down, you know, first show of the year, we go through all of these headlines. And, you know, there's a lot of stories here that are sort of talking about activity in the northern summer last year that's just sort of surfacing now, uh, you know, particularly these Russian attacks against energy interests, NATO-aligned energy interests, obviously the war between, uh, well, the war in Ukraine uh, perpetrated by Russia, it's, uh, you know, energy is a huge factor in the whole dynamic there. So the fact that Russia is is looking to target, uh, uh, you know, NATO-aligned energy interests should not be surprising. But I, I, I just think the true extent to, of, of what's going on Maybe that's emerging now, or maybe there's just a whole bunch of stuff that we're not hearing about, you know? So that's another theme uh, this year is like, we, we just don't know quite what Russia's up to, but it seems like more than has been reported. Yes, and I know when we've talked last year about, you know, the... the we were predicting, well, you know, we and pundits in general were predicting more cyber war, you know, in Ukraine, and then we're a little bit underwhelmed by the, you know, the Viasat compromise and, you know, the sort of... The, a few small attacks. I wasn't underwhelmed by Viasat. I thought that was amazing. Well, the Viasat was, was, was cool. But I'm thinking like in terms of, of what we were imagining, which was, you know, a much more widespread use and effective use of, of the cybers. I mean, I thought I thought they were going to be kept busy in Ukraine, actually. Like that was my thinking at the, at the time. And a lot of people certainly were predicting that they were going to go wild and feral with attacks on the West. But I just thought they don't have the, the resources to do that. But anyway, go on. Yes. So I think, you know, I think at the time I said, like, we're just not going to know, you know, when they write the history of this conflict, you know, some years from now, then we might have a better picture. Because, yeah, there's so much, in you know, intrigue and subterfuge and, you know, tying all the bits together and understanding the impact and who's doing it and what. You know, it, it just takes time um, mm. to, you know, to pull all the bits together. And we had some reporting um, this week about, 
uh, you know, a set of attacks on U.S. Uh, you know national labs that handle nuclear you know nuclear materials, Lawrence Livermore, um, Brookhaven, Argonne National Labs, you know, also attributed to some Russians that are you know state aligned, etc. Like. You know, that may have just been happening normally. Like maybe that's just, you know, that's just work a day if you work in the nuclear field. But, you know, if it's part of a larger, you know, set of focus on, on energy infrastructure in the Western and NATO, you know, then it's really interesting. So well, it's hard to know what's a trend and what you're yes. just paying attention to, right? And yes, I remember exactly the funniest right. thing I saw recently about, you know, all of these oligarchs in Russia. Well, oligarch probably isn't the right term anyway, but all of these wealthy Russians who seem to be falling out of a lot of windows, right? And everyone's like, <laughs> it's got to be the FSB. And I think I heard someone on a podcast just say, well, you know, your typical 50-something Russian drinks a lot. And is quite stressed at the moment. So, you know, it could also <laughs> just be that they're getting quite drunk and falling out of windows. Mm. Yeah, and I guess they probably buy high-rise places that, you know, yeah. are a long way up. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, cause and effect, hard to say. <laughs> yeah, so there's been a couple of interesting attacks against uh, Ukraine as well. We saw one sort of supply chain uh, infiltration targeting a bit of software used by Ukrainians uh, to do battlefield stuff. Is that right? Uh, yes, this is their Delta system they use for like battlefield information management. Um, the Russians uh, appear to have compromised like the email account of someone at you know like Ministry of, of whichever looks after it, and then they sent out a like our certificates are expiring. Can you please run you know cert update.exe attached here or whatever else uh, to go and and uh, break in and install some Trojans, which you know not sophisticated in terms of attack, but you know, it works. sophisticated. But it works, yeah. It only has to work, right? Yeah, I think uh, there's so. also some Trojans, like, uh, you know, Windows installs popping up on torrent <laughs> sites as well. So just seeding, seeding dodgy torrents and hoping Ukrainians grab them. There was an interesting, um, another interesting thing that surfaced that Russia's been up to is they, the Turla crew apparently spotted an expired C2 domain for Andromeda and they just registered it. Um, captured all of those compromised hosts and then just looked through them to see which ones were interesting uh, in terms of intelligence value. And, you know, uh, government groups have been doing this for a long time, but it's interesting to see a public report uh, on this where they just... And, and you know, often a government group might do something fancy to hijack that C2. In this case, all they had to do was register a domain. <laughs> and it's funny in a way because Turla is the, you know, the crew that's largely attributed with the like classic moonlight maze hacks back in the in the in the 90s that, that triggers PTSD and uh, all of the American uh, you know defense cyber people um, and they were USB spreading back in there and the Andromeda malware is also a USB spread one uh, that they've now taken over so it's kind of a nice full circle um, but they um, apparently hit like one system in UK and then dropped you know some classic you know some like Turla malware using the Andromeda's uh, existing compromise in some you know, Ukrainian government agency, which, you know, I, I think like for the Hunt Forward people that are in, if there's anyone old enough in the Hunt Forward crew and, uh, you know, in Ukraine, then they're going to be, you know, down at the pub drinking their sorrows uh, yeah. after the, you know, all the, all the flashbacks. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, too, in uh, Moldova, uh, the government in Moldova is being hit with a bunch of um, phishing attacks, obviously, you know, Moldova uh, being located bordering Ukraine with Transnistria and whatever. Uh, gee, I wonder who's behind uh, that one. But yeah, there's just there's just an awful lot going on, you know, attacks against petroleum refineries, nuclear scientists, governments, you know, we've got DDoS, we've got uh, supply chain stuff, it's just all happening. Uh, staying with the theme of uh, intrigue, Cyber Command, uh, Paul Nakasoni has done his usual thing, which is to come out and said, uh, he's come out and said, we did some offensive stuff to protect our elections, which he says every time there's an election, but doesn't really tell us what he did. Um, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. he always gives the soundbite and people always run it, so. Yeah, and he said that they did quite a lot of whatever it is that they're doing that they're not telling us what they're doing, but yeah. they did plenty of it and it was very effective. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess they're doing something, which is the important thing, even if we don't know the specifics. Um, and, it, yeah, it must be a tough day, you know, when you're working you know, working your nine to five and, you know, the Russian ministry of interfering with American elections. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of your bounce hosts and everything just kind of go away one day. And all <laughs> yeah. your tools are on virus total all of a sudden. And yeah, it's a bad day at the office. Well, my advice to them is now do ransomware, right? And, uh, you know, that's the <laughs> that's the next little bit we're going to talk about is, is, you know, ransomware and hack and leak. And, you know, it just doesn't stop, does it, right? And and probably the, the highest profile scalp at the moment is The Guardian. Now, this news first broke 
last year. I got a story from Alexander Martin from the record here dated December 21. I mean, I heard just grapevine stuff that like they're still having trouble, right? Like people aren't coming into the office. They're having to remote into like services, you know, remotely. They can access some stuff. But as best I understand, this is still an ongoing thing. Yeah, I mean, an organisation like that is going to have so many information, you know, systems and assets and whatever else and trying to pull them all back into service and understand how it all works, you know, especially in an organisation that's you know, been around for a long time. There's, uh, you know, I'm sure a very long tail of systems um, that they have to work through there all, you know, while still keeping publishing going and, you know, printing stuff and keeping the, the webs updated. So, yeah, it must be a tough day there. Yeah, so as far as I know, there's still it's still like a shit show uh, at the Guardian. But I mean, I could be wrong, right? This is just stuff I heard uh, just randomly. So, Journal grapevine. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or just you know other random you know people who know people who you know like not even journos. I just heard. Oh yeah, I got a mate who works at the Guardian, and it's a shit show. You know, like that sort of thing, right? So, um, but you know, that's a big, that's a high profile scalp, right? And I can't yeah, imagine them paying because they're a media company and uh, you know newspapers <laughs> don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? Um, uh, what else have we got? Yeah, we got a, a, a British company that that uh, called Morgan Advanced Materials, which produces ceramic and carbon parts used in uh, semiconductor manufacturing. You'd think Chinese APT crew, chip ban, whatever, and it looks like you read between the lines on this one feels like ransomware. Does, uh, yes. Port of Lisbon got lock bitted. Interestingly enough, I keep searching and having a look around to see if Revil slash BlogXX have been active. Not much from them lately, man. Like, this is the one that's being targeted <laughs> by the Australian government. Their, their leak site did come back up the other day, but there's nothing new on it. Uh, so the last we heard of them was when they um, had claimed to uh, have a bunch of data from a American, like, back-end medical, you know, medical industry services uh, company, right? So uh, still, still waiting to see their next big thing um, after Medibank. And they've been, as I say, they've been quiet, but we can't really infer too much from that just yet, but I promised people I would update them. So there's an update. Um, yeah, sick kids. My God. You know, Toronto's hospital for sick children, uh, which is Canada's largest pediatric health center. Uh, they got uh, ransomware. Just no, Again, Lockbit, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Canadian copper mine uh, has had to shut down due to ransomware. The Los Angeles Housing Authority... Um, geez, what else? Oh yeah, and I, I caught this one in the local news. An Australian fire service. Which one was it? It was in Victoria. Yeah, their fire rescue, like some of their computer systems got hit. But I, the reason I heard about it is because they were on the TV news here saying, "Look, you know, it's a, it's a bit annoying, but if you call us, we're still going to turn up." So I don't think it had a huge operational impact in terms of frontline stuff. So that's nice. Uh, but. In San Francisco, the Bay Area Rapid Transport, they've had a, a ransomware incident. And just on and on and on it goes. We've seen a hack and leak against the San Francisco Transit Police, blah, 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 blah. It just, it's never ending. And and this is why I feel like 2023, and I look, I have said this for a few years, but I feel that with the Australian government's action against Revil, especially if that succeeds, I think we're going to see other governments follow suit. I understand the ransomware task force in the United States is properly up and running now. I just feel like this is the year when we set a clear direction that we're going to go after these sorts of operators. Yeah, I think the, the move in emphasis from just locking systems up uh, to stealing data and leaking it, especially when it's things like in the case of the BART police data, you know, there's a bunch of, of records of people, you know, people's details and things that, you know, you just really don't want out there on the internet and it's just kind of not acceptable to let slide. And I think, you know, obviously Australia's leading the way there. Um, but yes, it's you know, it's going to continue because it makes money uh, and I think it's going to become rougher and rougher being on those crews, you know, uh, yeah. especially if, you know, as you say, blog, blog XX. Um, I didn't realize the BART and the transit police one were the same one, but of course that makes sense. Yeah. But see, yes. I think I think we're seeing a rise of hack and leak because controls have got better, right? And increasingly what we're seeing is attackers are getting on networks, trying to drop encryptors. EDR is stopping them because EDR is actually quite good at stopping ransomware these days, right? So because we've had such ransomware problems for so many years, the tooling's actually got pretty reliable in terms of stopping it, shutting it down. But what we haven't done is got to the point where we can protect the crown jewels, right? So what they're doing is they're going in, they're stealing the crown jewels and then trying to drop ransomware. The ransomware is failing. So they go, okay, well, at least we can shake some money out of them uh, by extorting the data. The thing is, 
people aren't paying. You know, maybe some are, but most aren't. And I just sort of wonder, I mean, I wonder how sustainable a model that is. I mean, we've seen extortion type stuff in the past with DDoS, like pay us, you know, two grand or we're going to DDoS you. And people don't pay. They just don't. So I, I feel like we could see as controls get better and better at organizing, organizations get better and better at actually stopping the crypting part of the ransomware process. I think we're going to see much more hack and leak for a short period. But like I wrote a Mastodon thing earlier today where I said, you know, if you're one of these attackers, right, if you've stolen data that's not of any real consequence, no one's going to want to pay to suppress its publication, okay? And if you have stolen massively important data, a la Medibank, then you, you've bitten off more than you can chew and you're going to bring down so much heat on yourself. So I think that's why as a crime type, I'm not long, uh, Adam, uh, to use market <laughs> terminology, I am not long hack and leak and data extortion. I just, I just think it's a dumb crime and it's, it's not going to pay nearly as well as ransomware. With ransomware, people are paying to get operations back up and running again. You know, if there's some embarrassing emails out there, a director has to resign, companies won't care. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. That that middle ground between sensitive enough to get paid for, but not so sensitive you get hounds released at you, like that's a hard line to walk. And and as we were when we were talking about you know the the hack and leaks that Ukrainian hackers are doing, uh, you know, against various amounts of Russian data, that finding the useful stuff in big data sets, you know, is a separate business, right? Of being you know being a good quality analyst who can sift through and find juicy stuff that takes real work. And I think. You know, if um, no, I just want you to imagine for a second. Imagine the attackers who took on uh, Colonial Pipeline. Imagine the ransomware failed, but they got all of the corporate email and threatened to dump it. Yeah, right. Would anyone be interested in reading a pipeline company's emails? (laughs) Like, I can't think of anything more boring than being forced (laughs) to read executive emails from a pipeline company. I would rather pinch myself until I bleed. Adam, then read those emails. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it certainly would not have stopped oil, you know, gas being dispensed at a gas station, which is what really got the coverage in the US. And well, what about, what about JBS Meats? Do you fancy yeah. sitting down and going through a few Outlook PSTs featuring emails about wholesale meats? <laughs> I mean, I do like a juicy steak, but not that much. No, yeah. no, it, it, yeah. Yeah, no, your point is very well made, right? That hack and leak, uh, especially for ransom, you know, but in general as well, has just not been super effective. I know it's not on the list this week, but we the were talking about one. Yeah, yeah. We actually, we actually had a meeting yeah. yesterday and decided not to talk about it, and here we are talking about it. But, uh, <laughs> here we are, yeah, yeah. There was a story. I can't remember who published it. Actually, was it Wired? I can't remember. I think, yeah, maybe it was Wired. Yeah. Yeah. So they they basically, you know, I'm going to check. See, I, and I'm Ooh. not even going to edit this out. You can all you can all hear the thrilling behind the scenes, um, <laughs> behind the scenes risky business as I find yeah. the right tab. Yeah. Uh, there if, it is. Hang on. If hackers steal our editorial meeting notes, then we're not going to pay no, for it. Was, it was <laughs> you the get record. Them for free. It was the record. So uh, well done, we the go. record uh, on on publishing that one. But basically, they they looked at the Guacamaya leaks, and you know, some dodgy government stuff was revealed in the in the Guacamaya leaks, and nothing happened as a result of it. Right? Like no one's yeah. been fired. There's been no inquiries. I mean, that might change, obviously. But the point of the article was um, that yeah, you know, you can you can leak all the data you want. It's it's not always going to do what you think it's going to do. Yeah, and it may take, a you know, three years from now, a Bellingcat, you know, needs some kind of data that happens to be in one of those leaks and then it gets pulled together into something useful like the, you know, the very long amount of time it took with the um, Malaysian Airlines shoot down, you know, that, that yeah. um, Bellingcat investigates. So like, these data leaks are, are like OSINT fuel and that's about yes, it. But exactly, I can't yeah, imagine JBS meets data or, you know, like... Well, I don't know, there might be some raw OSINT, you know, ore <laughs> that they'll use at some point in the future. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, you know, I agree with you that the future of being you know a ransomware operator who's doing extortion as the primary business, like that's going to be a hard life, I think. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about regulation. We were just talking about Colonial Pipeline, uh, using them as an example. It looks like the Biden administration has had enough of this sort of, you know, touchy-feely self-regulation stuff happening in critical sectors in the United States, and they're about to push through some regulations that mandate certain things happen uh, with regard to cybersecurity controls in critical uh, uh, facilities in the United States. 
Yeah, and apropos of our previous conversation, this is a good example of things improving because one of the goals of this set of, of regulation is to kind of look at the patchwork of regulation that applies to critical infrastructure operators in the US and try and kind of unify it a bit, try and make it more consistent, more clear, and also I mean, the knee-jerk regulation of the oil and gas industry after Colonial Pipeline really was not effective. They came up with a bunch of you know requirements that were not even, in some cases, not even possible, uh, and so building a you know a model where they've gone back to the oil and gas sector got a bunch of you know comments and feedback built some regulation that works and then also you know go and talk to the various you know department of agriculture and department of whoever else that are responsible for regulating little bits of critical infrastructure and coming up with a more comprehensive as you say less voluntary uh, set of rules is a good place for the US to be because it's just you know regulation has been really complicated there and the presence of very well funded lobbyist groups like the Chamber of Commerce you know kind of trying to make less regulation for their you know constituency you know the, even they are at the point where they're starting to accept that this is a necessary thing that is going to have to happen so that feels like progress to me yeah now this next one's really funny Adam because it is the sort of headline that you and I would just normally walk past, right? Car hackers discover vulnerabilities that could let them hijack millions of vehicles and you think, oh yeah, radio, you know. Yeah, it'll just be some like aftermarket vehicle telematics thing you plug into your <laughs> be 2 porn and where, where, whatever. Now this is, what's amazing about this is this is the sort of thing where if it had to come along five years ago, even, even a different set of people would have hyped the absolute crap out of this, but I'm glad to see that <laughs> hasn't happened. But as a result of it not being hyped, I feel like it's flown a little too far under the radar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> because... Like walk us through this one, Adam, because oh, you had Lord. the exact same reaction as me, which is like, you're like, why is this in the list? And then click, oh my God. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because we were, we were talking through the list before, you know, we were recording, figuring out what we were going to cut to make space. Uh, and I'm like, eh, you know, whatever, another vehicle thing, boring. And I'm next. like, yeah, maybe you want to read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I went and read it. And then I went and read the, you know, the actual blog post from Sam Curry and friends, because it was a big group of people. Um, they went to some like conference at a university somewhere and there's a bunch of scooters lying around like the the rideshare scooter things uh and they you know, found some bugs in that where they could make the lights and the horns and stuff go on on the scooters and that was good fun and they thought well let's go look for similar bugs in the automobile industry but that know. was like via the some api right like it yeah, wasn't yeah, like some, connecting to directly to the scooters it was yeah, like it was just like fiddle api could, flash the lights sort of thing yeah yeah it was, I, th I assume it was like you know serial number of the scooter into some api that makes them honk uh, and you just you know increment the serial numbers and then all of a sudden they're all honking um so anyway they went away and, and looked for bugs you know, made an ad hoc research crew to go look for bugs in the automobile in automobile industry stuff, and then that turns into like full like remote unlock of Kia, Honda, Infiniti, Nissan, and Acura, uh, a bunch of like misconfigured SSO in Mercedes Benz that leads to remote code exec, um, remote lock and like location details and stuff of, of Hyundai cars, uh, you know SSO compromise at BMW that lets you like log in to any as any employee or any dealership just like log in with no auth they got rolls um, royce too yeah they got rolls royce they got ferrari they got oh. um like a, a direct object reference uh, into like all ferrari customer records and they could add routes to api.ferrari.com to just like talk to other services um and they compromise them in some cases those are like you know in some cases complete remote code exec um, which uh, is not great. And and I think in the case of the like Kia, Honda, et cetera ones, like if you knew the VIN number, you could like take over people's accounts and the VIN number's like printed on the car. Yeah. Uh, and so you could just like walk up to a car, look at its VIN number, unlock it and, and off you go. Uh, they had for Kia's uh, remote, like uh, remote access to the cameras in the car. Yep. Which not, not great. Um, Ford, they got like, uh, memory disclosure via some like telematics API, which they could get, you know, access tokens and stuff for running commands on the vehicles and customer account takeover. Um, they also went after a company called Spyron. <laughs> but wait, there's more. I know, right? Uh, and Spyron <laughs> is the like company that acquired a bunch of the like, you know, LoJack and, and other, you know, fleet vehicle fleet location systems. And so they just got like full remote code exec. Yeah. To, so they can track all of the like millions of devices, 15.5 million vehicles uh, that were managed or had their location data tracked by Spyron. Uh, and, and it gets better. 
Uh, in California, you can buy digital license plates now that are like just as legal as metal ones. I don't know why you'd have to care, why you want a digital plate in your car. But anyway, apparently it's a thing in California. Uh, and they can, uh, so you can track the cars via these number plates and you can like set custom messages on them. And if you report your vehicle stolen, the number plate changes to stolen, which... I guess, I guess that's pretty cool. But anyway, so there's only one company that's allowed to sell these things in, in California. Uh, and yeah, they just like straight up admin console access to it, like admin portal. And they had full access to the entire company's entire fleet of license plates. So I've, I've, got a, I've got a theory on how we got here, which <laughs> is that, uh, you know, say what you want about Elon Musk. Uh, I, I am genuinely impressed with what he has done with Tesla. Even this is, even though this is a product that has some issues around things like full self-driving and whatever, and even <laughs> though he promises the the moon and often doesn't deliver, whatever, right? Like the literal moon. Look, the fact is, he was able to start a, an electric car company, which has forced other companies to now move electric, right? Like I, I, I sincerely believe he brought forward the mass adoption of electric cars. Uh, by years, right? And I, I, yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's great. Now, the other thing that he did too, uh, that Tesla has done very well, is the technology side. Now, you know, my our family car is a Model Three, base Model Three. We've had it about a year. It's been a good car, but the tech is good, right? Like the 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 that. And when I say tech, I just mean the the GUI, the big iPad thing in the middle of the car works very well. It's it often gets updated. It's a very sort of modern DevOpsy sort of thing, right? Like you're often getting these updates and whatnot. And I think um, once you've experienced that, like you don't want to go back to such a static interface. And I think you know that would have been borne out in market research. So all of these car companies now, they're trying to do two things. They're trying to modernize their tech and they're trying to go electric, right? I, I think really what's happened is the major car makers have sort of been caught on the back foot here and they've had to rush a lot of this stuff. And I think that's yeah. how we got here, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that's a, a probably a, you know, a pretty realistic assessment of the situation, um, especially because of the ubiquity of bugs, right? I mean, I hadn't even got to the end of the list Right, there's also Porsche, Toyota, Jaguar, Land Rover, yes. the Sirius radio, you know, satellite radio thing. And there's, there's quite a lot of similarity in these system in the bugs, right, which are all of the API plumbing, the auth for those, some SSRF bugs, you know, all of the things you would expect building modern web apps in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what that's where we are, right? And and you just think uh, this is the tip of the iceberg and you don't just throw together a crew find all of this stuff, it gets fixed and that's that. Yes, agree this, completely. This suggests problems. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you, you know, any car that you've bought in the last, you know, five, ten years has so much, you know, technology in it now, even if it's old ratty technology, <laughs> you know, that's not uh, Tesla grade, it's still there and things like Yeah, but like a car you bought five years ago might not have a data connection. Now they do because everyone's doing yes. OTA updates and there's all of this location stuff and summon modes and like it's it's really changed, okay? So yeah. I, I, I don't think you can say that this is something that applies to, you know, five to 10-year-old cars. This is stuff in the last one or two. And, and I just think we're going to see more research like this through, through 2023 and it's going to be very funny. <laughs> yes, yeah, agreed. I was. Uh, I have a Polestar, uh, Polestar Two at the moment, and did it finally like turn up? Did it? <laughs> it's a uh, and it's um Android Auto. It's like the flagship Android automotive. And I was driving along the road, and it decided to just like spontaneous reboot the Android part of it, and like the aircon stops working, and like you know, car goes dark, and it's still driving, but you don't feel very good about it at that point. <laughs> uh, now, look, we're just going to have to run through these last ones because we're kind of out of time. Um, we've got a fun story here from Ars Technica. A few people covered this, actually, which is, um, uh, you know, a few defendants have been charged with conspiring with a group of Russians to, like, rig the New York taxi dispatch system to give preferential dispatch to to certain drivers, which is, you know, very... This is stuff that could have happened in the 80s, you know? Like, it's, it's yeah, it feels, yeah, exactly. feels kind of old school, right? And then we've got this one from uh, Joe Cox at, at Motherboard where someone has deepfaked their voice and then used like AI to demand a refund from Wells Fargo like over the phone <laughs> and it succeeded because it's such a process-based thing. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, we got an interesting write-up here from uh, Forbes as well about, uh, you know, how cyber criminals are going to build, you know, better malware with ChatGPT. I think that's true, right? Like, so one area where ChatGPT seems to be quite useful is in writing code, right? And helping people to write code. I, I think there hasn't quite been 
enough discussion about the abuse that's going to stem from uh, chat GPT proliferation, let's call it. We're going to see so much SEO uh, spam. We're going to see so much spam content, just so much chat GPT generated text going out there and filling up every crevice of the internet. My question is, Adam, at what point does chat GPT start training itself? <laughs> yeah, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That all and of is that, it just going to uh, get stupider and stupider and stupider? Is it, is it like, <laughs> yes, you know, it says something wrong and then that gets fed back into the training model and, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, so, I mean, the ML future is going to be such a wild ride. Uh, and yeah, the idea of a chat GPT trained on its own hallucinations of, of Stack Overflow you know, yeah. and then that iterating another, you know, five or ten times. <laughs> yeah, it's like Skynet, but really yes. stupid. It's like, it's like S- the- Skynet, the idiocracy version of Skynet. Yes, yeah, basically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so wouldn't that be funny if that's what that's what did in Skynet in the end? It just yeah. started training itself on itself and got really dumb. <laughs> <sighs> and uh, look, a great story here from James Reddick uh, at the record, where hackers are actually doing BEC schemes and like winding up with truckloads of physical goods like powdered milk sugar which is uh okay sure i mean i don't know what i'd do with a truck of powdered milk but yeah I'm like how do you fence that like you phone the local the local crime fence and like i have a truck full of milk powder yeah. <laughs> want to buy some powdered milk um that sort of thing but you know some real and money like involved six hundred thousand dollars worth of powdered milk right i mean it's not a small amount but yeah i don't know how you cash that out like you know, it's one thing to have some mules, some Apple, you know, gift cards or whatever. <laughs> I mean, know, it, it tends to, to imply organized crime, right? Like it does. That's, that's yes. what you would think. Um, <laughs> the Belarusian cyber partisans have mm. for, like basically got like this uh, version of Telegram that they've created that you install on your smartphone. And if cops, you know, grab you and start belting you and asking you for your password, you can give them a duress password, which automatically nukes uh, certain channels and chats and, and, and whatever. So you can show the, the police your, your phone. Um, this is interesting because it's another one of those headlines that you and I scrolled past. And then when you actually read the story, you're like, oh, okay, no, that's actually kind of interesting. And it is the Belarusian cyber uh, partisans who seem to do cool stuff. So I, I thought this was interesting. Yeah, this is a very pragmatic solution. Like when I read the headline, I thought, oh, well, they made some new rubbish, you know, kind of social network, you know, chat system and it'll be trashed like every other one is the first time or first five or ten times. But no, like adding a DRS password to the like open source Telegram clearly is a very, you know, sensible, pragmatic and in their environment, just super useful. There's the stories of people, you know, surviving being picked up by the cops in Belarus because of this. Uh, so really smart and yeah. also has the ability to uh, like do duress. If someone else knows how to, to knows the duress code word, they can paste it in the channel and cause other people's phones to be, you know, have their, their telegram history vaped or whatever else if necessary. It'll also can be configured to like take pictures out the front camera when the duress passwords entered. So they can get pictures of the, you cop. know, of the cops yeah, or security yeah, yeah. forces or whoever else. So like that's, pragmatic like that's that's cyberpunk that's what that is that's cyberpunk as hell and look there's been claims uh out of china uh some researchers in china have claimed uh they've reached a breakthrough in quantum computing and they've factored uh 2048 bit rsa uh but there's other people saying they're skeptical i i haven't really had time to look into this one uh did you get a chance to evaluate this at all adam yeah, so the reporting seems a little vague, but uh, they have a, a quantum computer that if it had 372 qubits, then they argue that they could break 24-bit. And if my RSA. grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they only had a 10-qubit computer. Oh. Uh, and then Schneier and a few other crypto people have been arguing that the attack that they are relying on doesn't scale like they think it does once you start getting into you know a higher number of bits, et cetera, et cetera. So... Kind of unclear, the um, uh, Alexander Martin from The Record did make the reasonable point that if, in fact, it did work, then probably the Chinese government wouldn't have let them put out a press release about it. So, yeah. That's a reasonable <laughs> argument, actually. Yes, <laughs> <I think it's. laughs> uh, in comedy news, Dan Gooden's got this one, but uh, this one I saw all over the bird site, which is that um, a Bitcoin developer... Uh, lost 3.6 million in yeah cryptocurrency and has called the FBI. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that if even one of the developers can't keep this stuff secure, what hope does the ordinary person have? I mean, that's the obvious message. It's a you know, I mean, it's very obvious, but yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's still you know, it's still a resounding message, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the developers of Bitcoin Core, like the thing that runs the whole shimozzle. And yeah, he got his box compromised and his 
not so cold wallet contents nicked. So yeah, I mean, if even they can't do it right and don't get you know what's hot and what's cold and where to keep the yeah. bitcoins, yeah, the rest of us no chance. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and this one, I mean, I first saw this, saw this in Catalan Kimpanu's reporting, but I've linked through to a uh, just its own article on the record by Jonathan Grigg here. Uh, there's an underground market for Chick-fil-A uh, loyalty points, which I just find <laughs> hilarious. So just like you might steal, you know, you might buy some stolen hotel loyalty points off the dark web or stuff. You too, Adam, can buy. Uh, loyalty points from the notoriously homophobic uh, uh, chicken fast food chain Chick-fil-A and get yourself some free chicken. <laughs> People on the bird side are reporting that they've had their uh, accounts broken into and quote, hella food ordered uh, with the points. Hella food. They're yeah. in, hella food. So, yeah. yes. Someone's enjoying <laughs> some illicit chicken. Let's just put it that way. stolen cyber chicken. <laughs> but, you know, there you go. I mean, there's an underground market for everything, yeah. you know. Powdered Wouldn't milk, you? Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it's uh, it's a funny old world. And uh, we're just going to end, Adam, uh, this week's news with the news that uh, extended support for Windows 7 is Gonski's. Yes. So if you wander through the airport and you see the departures screen isn't working and is on a Windows 7 update uh, update prompt, time's, there. Time, time's up. No yeah. more of that for you. So yes. And pen testers, every time you see a Windows 7 box, you get a free finding. So, yay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I wonder if it's going to be like XP, where now some big ones are going to beg and then they get to pay millions of dollars for extended, extended, yeah, extended support, yeah, you know? And then they end the extended, extended, extended support and then they get uh, ultra extended, 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 extended yeah. support. And, uh, well, there'll be, like, there'll be some like weird SKU that's not Windows 7 but secretly is that they still have to support like the Windows for pause. Yeah. which turned out to be like Windows XP or something that it lasts forever and is still supported or whatever else because super. And then you can get the uh, security updates from it and apply it to your regular Windows and then get patched post yeah, I, end of I think, life. I think uh, the Airlock guys have been called in to deal with like EOL Windows before. Yes. Yeah, where like it. there's just absolutely no option to upgrade the thing. So they have to, you know, re-architect it to make it less likely that an attacker can get near it and then just allow list it really tightly and yeah, yeah. cross your fingers <laughs> and hope for the best, you know? So, uh, yeah. Anyway, Adam, that is it for the the roundup, I guess, the first first uh, news segment of the year. Thank you so much for joining me. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do it all again next week. Cheers. Yeah, we will indeed. Thanks so much, Pat. I'll see you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of uh, the news that uh, happened over the last month or so in the old cybers. Uh, big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Dan Guido from Trail of Bits. Uh, Trail of Bits is a uh, USA-based security engineering firm who do, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff, really. Uh, so, yeah, security engineering, a little bit different to the average consulting organization that just does pen tests and whatnot. Uh, but Dan is joining me for an interesting conversation here. Uh, as Trailer Bits has grown, and I think there are about 130 people now, uh, they've realized they needed to sort of formalize the process of reporting bugs to vendors, right? Because this is a thing that pops up and, you know, they didn't really have formalized processes and that was something they realized they needed to do. And, you know, in addition to that, they've wound up developing an interesting technology, which is a way of developing a proof of exploit. So if you want to prove to someone that you can exploit a machine in a certain state and control a register, you can now develop a zero-knowledge proof uh, that you actually have the goods, which can be a useful thing in many ways. Uh, one way is that you can communicate that you do actually have a functioning exploit in, an, in a known system. Uh, and, you know, it might also be useful if you want to show someone uh, that you've got an exploit in a particular uh, system stack without actually allowing them to see what that vulnerability is and what you're actually exploiting. So here's Dan Guido. So like as we've gotten bigger in the last year or two, I basically like tapped the microphone internally at Trail of Bits and said, hey, um, this is actually a thing that I want to support now. There are probably some bugs that we do care about that would be very impactful for us to find and fix. So let's do that. Um, and what we found is, is a, a couple of surprising things. First off, we found that uh, Trail of Bits is sitting on a mountain of bugs that I didn't know even existed. So we, we uh, reported a bug in SQLite this year. We reported a a fundamental cryptographic issue with the entire field of zero knowledge. Like there's been these really interesting disclosures that we've had to navigate. And the second is that a whole bunch of people inside Trail of Bits don't know how to report bugs. 
which is crazy. <laughs> We've got like a hundred or more people that work for us. And really like none of them have gone through the same trials that some of the older people in the industry like myself have had to go through in terms of reporting bugs. So we've had to educate a lot of people internally about what that process is like and come up with a process that works for us as well as um, navigate the reporting of some of these really touchy sorts of security vulnerabilities. And so what's the experience been like? I imagine it's pretty much the same as it ever was, right? Like at least these days, you're going to have some responsive vendors and developers, but I imagine there's still plenty who are, you know, acting like it's 2002 as well. Yeah. So when, when you're reporting one of these really serious bugs, like when you, when you raise your hand and say, hey, I think I found a remotely exploitable issue in SQLite, it's kind of a different conversation. There's a lot of pressure on that statement. You have to be sure of yourself because you don't want to come out and be the, the boy who cried wolf of like, oh, I found this huge issue that affects half the internet, but oh, right, it doesn't. I'm sorry. I forgot to look at this one thing. Um, so we've had to have extremely rigorous internal review before we even talk to anybody about this stuff. And those conversations are then really, really difficult. Like when we, when we found bugs in SQLite, it's like, Oh, you can't exploit that. There's, there's no way. Like we have an internal one gigabyte memory limit. Like, okay, well, what if you use the C, the C API that allows you to bypass it? Or like, what if you use this control character? And like, how likely do you think it would be for an application to be constructed that uses SQLite inside of it that lets us use it like that? So we've had to have these really nuanced conversations that really um, took us from zero to 100 really quickly. So it's about sort of packaging it up in the right way, right? Like being able to actually put it in front of someone in a way that they understand instead of just throwing some badly written proof of concept code at them, which is traditionally the way we've done it in InfoSec. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I think there's another sort of difference that I've seen. Like, you know, I used to report bugs like 10 years ago, right? And the same issues exist and people will like ask you for a CVSS score and you'll say, well, technically it's a six, but we think you should patch this. And then they say, okay, great. It'll be shipped next year. And you're like, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> it, it is actually a serious issue. And like, you have to go through those same conversations, but especially in the last two years, bug bounties have like totally twisted a lot of the ways that these conversations work. Cause sometimes we find people that they want to give us a thank you. Like I remember bug bounties as a thank you of, of like, hey, we're not going to sue you. Here is like some a beer for your right? buddies. Like it used to be, here's your Firefox t-shirt, here's your sun hat and, you know, uh, 300 bucks or something. Thanks, you're awesome. Absolutely. And now in the last two years, we, we don't have big bounties. We have, it's, it, uh, who's the French guy that says, don't do bug bounties, do big, big bounties. <laughs> it's, it's real. Oh, it's the Vupen guys. That's, uh, I, I remember that yeah, from yeah, way yeah, back yeah. when. Um, so these, these big bounties, like it's crazy. Like you could have one person on the team that does, uh, that reports a bug and, um, the company that we give it to might want to give us a hundred thousand dollars or $250,000. And like, that's a significant portion of that person's income for a year. How do you end up having, and also there's going to be people on your team that may have helped with that, that might, might, might not be receiving that cash directly. So how do you provide an environment internally where everybody works for a company and survives the like political bombshell of somebody receiving a quarter million dollars for a single bug? So what that's uh, happened, right? Like, so you pass on the bounty earnings to the actual staff who came up with the bugs internally because some companies just eat the bounties. Right, yes. So we want to be fair about that. And that's been a really big conversation of how do you be fair about that as an employer? Um, especially where the employer, the intended purpose of us is to find bugs for people is like, that's the, that's the purpose of our work. So we build all these incredibly articulate tools inside the company that allow us to do it. And, um, sometimes you're taking the company car out for a spin or there's knowledge about a project area or a attack surface area that somebody else, uh, proved out, but then a third person or a fourth person down the road finds the bug. So what we settled on is trail of bits doesn't want to keep any of the cash that, we want to give the majority of it, the vast majority of it, 70% of it to the person that actually did the work or the team that actually did the work to find the bug. But we want to keep 30% of it for team-wide activities because every single bug that gets reported that's at a scale like the one that we care about, if it's a, if it's a bug in SQLite, is a team project. None of these things are like mercenary kills. They're all... Uh, building no, look, I mean, this. you know, you're, you're sitting here justifying keeping 30%. I can remember someone, I can't remember, but someone <laughs> found like some crazy bug, got a quarter of a million bucks and the company just said, thanks and uh, pocketed <laughs> it, right? 
Yeah. So we're not keeping the thirty percent. We keep it set aside. Uh, and you know what in, I mean. Like I, I, a, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get what you're saying, right? But I, I, I guess all I'm saying is that, like, you know, that's uh, that seems that seems fine, Dan. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Turns into like a team slush fund. Like we want to use it for for parties. We want to use it for training. We want to use it for like whatever that team wants to do with it. Uh, we kind of like give it to them. Um, okay, so, that's a so way you're a I... growing company. You're 130 people now. You've decided you want to establish some formal uh, a formal approach to reporting bugs. You want to encourage your team members to uh, to report bugs, and and that's sort of where you landed. Now, this leads into the second part of this conversation, which is very interesting, which is that you've developed a a way to do zero knowledge proof of exploit. Now, you're talking in this case specifically about like memory corruption sort of software exploits, right? Like, so we're not talking about web app exploits in this, in this case, we're talking about actual, you know, like proper, proper old school uh, exploits. Yeah, so um, it wouldn't be a trail of its talk if I didn't bring up something, you know, space alien technology related. Yeah, something weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we, are, we are slowly becoming more public about some of the research advances that we've made on what's called the DARPA Civ uh, program. Uh, it's, it's, there's some old stuff on it about our blog. We have some publications that are in the queue, but what it boils down to is I want to be able to describe a bug in a piece of software that you have, but I don't want to give the exploit to you. Is there a way that I can provide, that I can prove to you without a doubt that I'm able to control a register, that I can put stuff in memory at a certain location, or that I can escalate privileges from one level to another? And the answer is actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do with all these brand new techniques that came out in the last couple of years around zero knowledge. And not only is it possible, but we've proven that you can do it. Okay, okay, so how, right? Because that's the interesting part of this conversation is say I've got a, uh, you know, like a browser exploit or whatever. I want to be able to prove that I have a browser exploit that works on this particular browser and gives me this type of access or control. Um, how do I go about proving that in a way where I can prove that to the browser ma maker while simultaneously, and you said, you don't want to give the exploit to them. Okay, fair enough. But say I don't want them to be able to patch this thing um, either. I just want to prove to them that I have some sort of bug. I mean, like, how does that all work? I mean, can you actually obscure the vulnerability while still demonstrating that it exists? Yeah, totally. So at a really high level, the way it works is you and the person you're reporting both have the same piece of software. And I take a trace of it, and then I run this analysis on top of the trace that turns it into a mathematical proof, a ZK proof. And I send you that tr that the, the the zk trace, and then you evaluate that trace. And in evaluating it, it says after running the piece of code from Dan, you uh, are able to control a register here. And yeah. that's what you get. You get the you get the information that after running a program from Dan, he can control a register here. Um, so it's useful for for not just memory corruption. We have a couple of these like um, I. I I believe that we were working on this for Log4Shell. Um, like there's, yep. a, there's a bunch of things that are not explicitly memory corruption related, but that are reasonable to be proved in a system like this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's more about like looking at the what's happening in system memory as opposed to like what's happening at some sort of more app level, you know, rather than some sort of app level analysis, right? Or yeah, log I mean, level there's... analysis, I should say, which is why I was sort of talking about this as not being around web bugs. Uh, right. So there's there's probably a different research project to then extend it over to, to the yeah, web. But yeah. a lot of the necessary components of this are you have to have these really precise models of what the environment looks like, and then all the math that goes into the zero-knowledge proof. The Z, the, so ZK proofs are um, not used so much because they're very, very slow. Uh, like um, a big area that a lot of people are familiar with is the Zcash blockchain. It allows you to anonymously transfer cash between people as if it was actual cash. Um, just the same way if I gave you five bucks, then nobody uh, can like inspect that transaction between me and you. But that's not on by default in their blockchain because it's actually really, really slow to make those, um, those, those blinded transfers. Uh, so a big part of this is we've, we've got a whole team of uh, system security people and cryptographers that are trying to make that whole thing smaller and faster so that it's possible to prove more complex statements about code. No, and no, that's no. where we've made a lot of progress. I've got two questions I want to ask you about this, right? And I think I think they're both the burning questions that come to mind. The first question is, right, it's a proof. So I imagine that some effort has been put into this so that it's difficult to fake, um, you know, that you have a, uh, a piece of software that can, say, control a register, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, 
the trace doesn't evaluate unless you're both running the same code at the other end. Like it's it's not really there isn't really a way to forge this. It's it's a lot like um, I don't know. I could put it in the same class of like FIDO U2F, where like yes, you could you could press the security key when you're on the wrong website, but the signed message that it sends out to the server is for that wrong website. It's not for Google.com. Um, same thing here. Like if you make a trace against a piece of software that is somehow manipulated or not accurate or like the wrong thing, if it's fake, then the other counterparty isn't going to be able to evaluate it. It just won't compute. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it kind of like sidesteps that, that, that problem. Now, in addition to just being able to prove that an exp exploit is legit, uh, what is the purpose of this thing, right? So I'd, I'd imagine that like in a bug bounty context, say I find uh, some O'Day in like iOS, for example. Well, it probably doesn't work on iOS, but you know what I mean. Say I find an O'Day in like Google Chrome or whatever, and Chrome, the Chrome team says, oh, this isn't exploitable or whatever. I mean, here I can prove it. And, and best of all, I can prove it without even giving them the exploit. And if they want that exploit, they can pay me for example. So that's an obvious use case that springs to mind, which is to say, hey, I got a bug that lets me do this and I will sell it to you. Um, and we can agree on a, if we can agree on a price, right? Sort of puts so, the power back on the, uh, in the researcher's hands. Well, I, I, I think even ignoring the issue of power, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, it's really hard to communicate a lot of information throughout this entire process when you're reporting bugs. There is a lot of like context that you want to provide. Um, there's a lot of like human communication that happens. There might be a language barrier problem, and in this case, you're not you're, you're avoiding all of that because this is a programmatic way to communicate what your findings are. You don't have to worry about what English level description that you have of the bug. You can just show people what it can do. Um, so yeah. it makes it very. It so this facilitates is less a tool for for researchers to be able to uh, shake uh, wads of cash out of tech majors, and more about uh, coming up with some sort of uniform way to communicate the severity or impact of issues. I, I think that is one major benefit of it. Um, there are there are others, of course. Like there's a lot of people that produce research about security vulnerabilities, and they don't necessarily want to share all the tools and methods that they used to uh, to discover a bug until they're sure that the company is going to handle it appropriately. Um, yeah. And it's a way to gate a lot of that communication until after they have some assurance that, oh, I'm dealing with an honest uh, receiver of it. Well, I mean, it's a hell of a way to be taken seriously too, like pretty much immediately, because often trying to set up, you know, a proof of exploit, like that can be a pain, right? Whereas with this, I imagine you're just sending them a proof and, um, you know, it speaks for itself, right? Yeah, I mean, it's much easier to forge like a recorded YouTube video or whatever of you clicking uh, yeah, a button. Yeah, popping calc, says, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, I've got calc. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. How many I mean, of those that doesn't mean faked? much. I mean, because this would factor in things like exotic configurations and, and whatever, right? Because it would be a proof against a system in a particular state. I mean, I'm guessing that's how it works, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there's like, from, from, a, from a facilitation standpoint, it's also important that there are a whole bunch of people out there that probably would not report bugs if not for the existence of the system. Uh, so I think that there's a, a market of like underserved vulnerability researchers that may be convinced that like, hey, this is a way that I could do it without getting burned. Because there have been a lot of us that have been burned. And there's a lot of really serious people that um, like opt out of this whole industry and that like don't want to participate because they burned out on it 10 years ago. And th this is kind of a way to possibly re-engage with a couple of communities that, that like don't want to right now. All right, Dan Guido, a pleasure to chat to you uh, as always. Great to kick off 2023 uh, with you, my friend. Um, and uh, we'll be chatting again later in the year. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for having me. That was Dan Guido from Trail of Bits there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Trail of Bits for being our sponsor and indeed the first sponsor of this wonderful year 2023 and that is it for this week's show i do hope you've enjoyed it i'll be back tomorrow with uh, an episode of seriously risky business in the risky business news rss feed but until then i've been patrick gray thanks for listening <laughs>